0: Well, it's, um, it's a humbling um, yeah, evening to bring the, the Word of God to you uh, tonight. Uh, again, my name is Bryson, um, uh, one of the interns here at uh, Delray. And um, tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, of the first of the Beatitudes uh, in the Sermon of the Mount. So if you want to turn there, I'd invite you to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 5. And as I do... I think it's um, something that we can all agree on, that reality is not always what we perceive it to be. Sometimes, seeing is not always believing. In the famous cinematic series, Mission Impossible, the main character, Ethan Hunt, and his small band of, uh, call it freedom fighters, work often covertly to rid um, the world of tyranny and evil. In every one of these Mission Impossible movies, there is some scene in which it depicts one of the good guys masquerading usually as one of the bad guys in order to, uh, to catch the villain or to gain some sort of information. The scene ends, as you probably remember if you've seen them, with the good guy dramatically pulling off the mask and the hair and, and revealing that actually he's not who the person thought he was. Now, in that moment, the bad evil guy becomes implicated. He reveals his true identity. What happens in that moment What happens to the viewer as well as the villain is almost entirely the same thing. And that is that truth is revealed, misperceptions are recognized, and reality is exposed for what it is. With my family over the last week, I happened to watch one of these movies, and I was stunned at the one moment in which I did not expect this exact thing to happen. I was left kind of tumbled. Wait, what, what just, what just happened? Everything I thought was true has now been exposed as not true or fabricated. It was a lie. I spent the next hour or two or three actually trying to fall asleep after watching this one particular Mission Impossible movie and I couldn't fall asleep because I was rerunning in every, my mind every single time. What, was that scene actually true or was that part of this whole fabrication? My whole mind was tumbled, I couldn't even sleep. I was left second-guessing where reality was and where my my sense of reality uh, or perception of it had diverged from actual reality. It makes for a great movie. The reason why I think this is important is because it's exactly what Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus opens his mouth, as it says in Matthew 5, verse 2, and shows us the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes in and, in effect, pulls off the mask of the world and exposes it for what it really is, the world order being that everything which is antithetical or opposite to God, exposing reality for for what it is. The world values wealth. The world values power. The world values self-confidence, self-esteem, self-awareness. I can do it. I have it together. Put me in, coach. I got this. The world not only values that, but it promotes that. We see that in our workplaces. Those that have it together can make it happen. The ones that can make it happen are the ones that get promoted. The ones that have the answers are the ones that get promoted. It's all about self and self-promotion. But Jesus says, no, that's actually completely upside down and opposite. It's fabricated. And he pulls back the mask and reveals it for what it is. As believers, we can be so easily deceived into our own self-reliance, but Jesus' teaching pulls back the mask of this reality. We pick up where Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry in chapter 4, verse 17. You can read with me. Matthew records that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" Jesus then calls his first disciples and then in verse 23 he says he went uh, he went through throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Well, great crowds began to follow him. So he goes up on the mountain And he sits down, and his disciples, with the crowds with them, an intermingled group of disciples in various stages of discipleship, and then the crowds around him, great hordes of crowds, come to him. And what does he do? He sits down, and he teaches. What follows is the Sermon on the Mount, and it is probably the greatest sermon ever preached by our Lord Jesus. And in it, Jesus describes for us what this kingdom of heaven looks like. And it turns the tables and tumbles their perceptions. It, he characterizes the citizens of this kingdom. And it leads us now into the text this evening of Matthew 5, verse 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This section of verses from, from verses 2 through 11, which begins Jesus' sermon, is commonly referred to as. Uh, what is known as Beatitudes or, or Macarisms. This probably warrants some explanation. It's a little bit of a strange term. Sometimes we can grow up even in the church and not really even know what this term Beatitude even means. It actually comes to us from Latin, uh, and it just means blessed, blessed, or blessedness. It attempts to capture the meaning of this first word in verse 3, that is being blessed, the recipient of blessing, a reception or receiving of blessing. These beatitudes, they serve as a, as a sort of announcement of fortune and promise of blessing to the one who embodies these characteristics listed here. This blessing is it's more than mere happiness, as, as some translations take it. Instead, it invokes even a, a deeper sense of joy, that is found in the approval of God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Those who are blessed, they may be happy, but blessedness can never be reduced to mere happiness. And so Jesus declares, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit. What is Jesus Jesus getting at here in the poor in spirit? He's not pointing to a uh, financial poverty but instead a a recognition of a spiritual poverty before an almighty God. It is a a deep heart-level admission that because of sin, I am spiritually bankrupt. A personal acknowledgement of unworth before a most holy God. In speaking of God's holiness, Isaiah, in chapter 66, then concludes, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Heaven is my throne, And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, before a God who rules in heaven, the only appropriate response is one that is poor in spirit, humble and contrite, personally aware of your unworthiness, and a confession of of sinful rebellion against God, the king on the throne who rules over earth as its footstool. But it is more than that. It's also a recognition of the need for God to intervene. It's not just a recognition of my standing before God, but also the fact that I can't actually improve this situation before God. I need God to intervene. I can't, I can't change my spiritual situation or, or deliver myself from this dire state. Left to myself, there is no way out of this state of spiritual poverty. Indeed, is, is the cry of the humble and contrite tax collector of the Gospel of Luke in the temple, in contrast to the self righteousness of the Pharisee when the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me. There are no other words. In short, it is the recognition of one's need. For God. Jesus says, The blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, when a sinner humbles himself and admits his or her need for God, trusting in Christ, that is, believing that he accomplished what we mainly could not, a perfect life, and believing that his substitutionary death on the cross was sufficient to appease the wrath of God against sin and the wrath of god against my spiritual poverty and that he rose again defeating death and that we might finally be resurrected with him then and only then does the sinner gain the promised kingdom of heaven you see we we must recognize our sinfulness before we can even understand our need for a savior we must admit our spiritual poverty before we can receive the spiritual riches God has to offer. Paul writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, right out of the gate here in Matthew, Jesus offers the riches of his saving grace to those who know they are spiritually impoverished. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The kingdom of God is here and now, and its citizens capture a foretaste of what it will be. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God, and in breaking the kingdom of God, he calls poverty-stricken, spiritually-stricken, sinners to himself. He beckons and invites the spiritually bankrupt to have life and have it abundantly under submission to his rule and lordship in his kingdom. Maybe there are some of you with us tonight, even in this family gathering at Del Rey, where maybe that wouldn't necessarily describe you. I just want you to know, and I think that each one of us would like you to know, that there is no better place than we would like you to be. Hearing This good news in Jesus Christ that we can receive his grace for our spiritual bankruptcy. Would you receive it and would you come? Brothers and sisters in Christ, conversely, have we considered how easy it is to stray from this kind of dependence upon God? In these words, and in short words, Jesus completely unmasks our self-reliance. He will have none of it. You see, the opposite of God-dependence is self-reliance. And we can so subtly slide from a heart posture of dependence on God to a heart posture of reliance on self. How quickly our affections can grow cold and get crowded out by other worldly desires. Even, we can even, in small ways, buy into the world's admiration of the opposite upside-down world of self-esteem and self-reliance and self-confidence, looking inward for the answers that only God can provide in His Son, Jesus. It's easy to do because it's the pool that we swim in each and every day when we go out into the world and we have to fight against it. Well, sometimes we can be even like those that built the Tower of Babel. We can join in and saying, look at us. Look what I have done. Let's make a name for ourselves, even in the Christian circles. It can produce a hard-heartedness to God and to sin, especially in our circles. We can even succumb to the deadliness of of like a spiritual pride and arrogance that's rooted in in great learning and theological know-how. We can have all the answers, but none of the humility inwardly. We can look humble outwardly, but not inwardly. We don't have or possess Yeah, spiritual humility before God and our affections for Jesus, acting outwardly with piety even, or with good moral behavior, but inwardly growing cold. This can happen subtly, so allow me to offer a few, just a few ways, there's many we can go about here, but maybe just one or two uh, warning lights that can work as a spiritual diagnostic tool for what is happening within As we take stock, is your life so busy and distracted that the things of life are crowding out your devotion to the Lord? Lexi and I moved here in August, and one of the things, and I think some of us, others as well, can relate to, one of the things that, that was so astounding to us is just the pace of life. We moved in, and we were immediately inundated with how fast people move. We move, I mean, especially in the city, extremely fast, So much so that we can even forsake time with the Lord. It may not start from a place of self-reliance or even pride, but over time as we continue to make those decisions in that rut, we push aside fellowship with him. What are we really saying when we do that day in and day out? What are we really saying about our need for God when we don't make time for that? This is something that, as I was preparing, personally convicted, uh, and and uh, of and confessed of is just how quickly in the last four, three to four months we have moved in the rush of the river, of how fast we move, crowding our days in and days out. And before we know it, it's easy to, to sleep in, or it's easy to not open the word and be reminded of truth. Which leads into the second diagnostic tool Do you have a consistent reminder of truth? Do you see time in God's word as not only life-giving, but necessary? Or is it optional? Is there even space in your heart and mind and in your day for intentional prayer and communion with the Lord? This is something that's been personal to me as I have just walked with um, men in discipleship. And tracing back the the sins and the things that are are, um, besetting in their lives, often what it is and what it can be traced all the way back to is some place way back in the past they have continually made decisions in which they prioritize the busyness of life over the reminder of truth and they just don't think they need it. Do you need God's truth? Do you cling to it? One of the previous places that I worked, uh, we worked a lot with, with GPS, which is an interesting illustration. But one of the ways, if you know anything about it, it works on your phone. Everybody's got a phone. So you, you know if you're like navigating via Google, which is not like a, you know, Del Rey announcement that we use Google, but just if you're navigating out there using some sort of navigation system, your phone is, is connecting with the, the GPS satellites. But it's not constant. It's actually signals. And in between each signal, whether it be milliseconds or seconds, actual seconds, do you know what your phone is actually doing? It's drifting. And every time it gets an update of where it actually is, it snaps back to reality and gets the truth. And that's kind of how I think about even my time in the Word is when I close my, my Bible and I go about my day, without it, I start to drift and I need to open it back up and get another update. Without it, in the the discipleship, in in these men's lives, you can find yourself years down the path trading truth for lie and lie for truth because you haven't got an update from the Lord via his word. Thirdly, confession. One of the fastest ways to be humbled and be poor in spirit is to confess our sins to one another. Are you regularly confessing sin with someone? Do you have somebody in your life that's, That's a place where you can go for regular confession of sin. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it's as if when we don't confess, we are saying that we have no sin. And if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have a home that cultivates a culture of confession. We narrow in just a little bit an exhortation specifically for, for husbands and fathers in their families. We often can, can like to, to, to lead our families and our, and our wives in, in decision-making or, or come together and um, get aside things together and, and choose sometimes what leadership should look like in the home. But I think we sometimes forsake leadership in confession. Are you leading your spouse in confession? Are you leading your wife in confession? Do you regularly confess sin to your wife? Husbands and fathers, do you, do you regularly humble yourself and confess sin to your children in front of each other and lead and cultivate a home and a house of confession? Those are just three ways that we can, we can um, apply a spiritual diagnostic on where we are at in our affections for the Lord. And lastly, to close, I just want to offer up one encouragement because there are some in here tonight who are clinging to Christ in all they have. They are relying on him just to get through the day, moment by moment. brother and sister, the kingdom is yours. It is present and it is a present reality. Jesus declares yours is the kingdom of God, and his promises will not fail. He is tender with those who are poor in spirit, who cling to him day in and day out. So do not give up. Run to him and cling to him Place your dependence on him, and he will not fail you. It may not mean that your troubles will disappear, even in this life, but there is a day coming in which they will. Cling to him and run to him. The rest of the sermon and the rest of the Beatitudes that we'll unpack in the the following weeks describe a lot of things of what the disciples should look like and embody. But as we consider even tonight, blessed are the poor in spirit, I just want to remind us that these Beatitudes and even the entire sermon from chapter 5 to 7 is describing Jesus himself. He is calling sinners into discipleship in which the disciple looks more progressively like the king, King Jesus. And that is not something we can just pull ourselves up and do and accomplish on our own. That is fueled and provided by -by moment-by-moment grace. The antidote to those three diagnostic tools is to run to Him in the moments and ask for that grace. Submit to His Lordship in His kingdom, and He will give you the grace to obey. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we we are grateful for how your word exposes the lie that we can so often believe that Satan wants to whisper to us that I can do it on my own, that I can can do this, and then add some Jesus on top. Help us, Father, to be men and women, brothers and sisters in this body that depend wholly and completely upon you for the grace that we need each and every day, moment by moment. May we encourage one another all the more in dependence upon you, and in putting off the sinful lie of self-reliance. May we be men and women who are poor in spirit. May we reflect that. May we run to you for the ability to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.